Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the Shadow Brokers release a big NSA dump and we dive in. Google's got a login issue that could allow credential theft and researchers have mapped the Netflix delivery network. Plus some great feedback, follow-up, and a rockin' roundup on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 282 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 1st, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. Our live stream and all of the downloads of Jupiter Broadcasting are powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Go check them out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris. Everybody, thanks for watching. Hello, hello. I am uh, I'm reviewing the stories this week. I'll say I'm looking forward to all of them, but the third story you put in here from just a technology standpoint totally fascinates me. Good, solid lineup today. Plus, we've got some nice follow-up from last week's questions uh, in the email section, and then some great roundup stories, including a story or two that confirms something we talked about years ago that we speculated about is now confirmed. So pretty solid show this week, Mr. Jude. Are you ready to just jump right in with this uh, Shadow Broker story? Sure. Uh, so this is the story some people were waiting for last week that <laughs> I said we'd have to wait. Uh, and I still don't think I had enough time to go over as much of it as I wanted. But anyway, so Shadow Brokers, which is this you know anonymous hacking group on the internet or whatever, has uh, a claims to have stolen hacking tools from the Equation Group, which is, has links to the NSA. Uh, so it says, uh, on Monday of last week, a hacking group calling itself Shadow Brokers announced that it will auction off what it claims are the cyber weapons made by the NSA. The previously unknown group said uh, it broke into the, uh, a cyber espionage organization known as the Equation Group and has now put the hacking tools that it acquired from that breach up for auction. Hmm. In addition to selling the hacking tools to whoever uh, would end up being the highest bidder, Shadow Broker said that if they were paid one million bitcoins, <laughs> which is over half a billion dollars, yeah. uh, the cyber weapons will be released publicly. Uh, to back up its claims that it has all this stuff, the Shadow Brokers uh, uploaded what looks like the attack code, uh, well, they uploaded 256 megabytes of their haul. Uh, which appears to be attack code that focuses on security systems of routers uh -huh. uh, and other so, systems that direct traffic online. We haven't seen... So I, I've, I have read a lot of publications that are going through some of the tools. It seems like they've gotten their hands on it. Is is it only like a sample that's been released yes, so far? Yes, this is only a sample of them, enough to prove that they have all of it. Most of what they released is older stuff from like 2010. Mm. Uh, although some of this was still not known uh, and you know some of these vulnerabilities still exist. Uh, so showing that the NSA has been uh, camping on some of these vulnerabilities for six plus years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which they claim they don't do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, according to security experts, the code looks legitimate, affecting routers manufactured by uh, three U.S. companies and two Chinese companies, including uh, Cisco, Fortinet, Juniper, uh, Shanghai Network Cloud Information Technology. <laughs> And Beijing top set network security technology. Some of the names are amusing. Mm -hmm. uh, they say um, last year, researchers from Kaspersky Labs described the Equation Group as one of the most advanced hacking groups in the world. Uh, 
the data dump we got uh, it was compressed data that accompanied the post uh, had a size of 256 megabytes and is said to contain hacking tools that dated as early as 2010 and belonged to the equation group. It looks like somewhere here from 2013, too, going through the intercepts. Uh... So, yes, uh, the intercept then posted, the NSA leak is real. Snowden documents that we have previously not released confirm their identity. Um, Based on never-before-published documents provided by whistleblower Edward Snowden, The Intercept can confirm that the arsenal contains authentic NSA software, part of the powerful constellation of tools used to uh, covertly infect computers worldwide. So uh, my little commentary is that this doesn't necessarily mean that the tools were stolen directly from the NSA. Maybe the shadow brokers stole them from somebody who stole them from the NSA. Or, or maybe, somebody who was hacked by the NSA, yeah, possibly. Or, or maybe... The equation group uh, wrote the tools, and then the NSA stole them and used them themselves. <laughs> I like that one, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in particular, though, uh, the provenance of the specific code that was released uh, has been a matter of heated debate this week uh, among security experts. And while it remains unclear how the software leaked, one thing is beyond speculation. The malware is covered in the NSA's virtual fingerprints and clearly originates from the agencies. In particular, the evidence that ties the shadow broker dump to the NSA comes from the agency's manual for implanting malware, which is classified top secret and provided to The Intercept by Snowden. Interesting. Uh, and was previously not available to the public. This draft manual instructs NRA, uh, sorry, NSA operators to track their use of this specific malware program by including a specific 16-character string, ACE02468BDF13579, uh, which is actually not that random. That's actually like very pedestrian, but anyway. Uh, that exact same string appears throughout the Shadow Broker link in code associated with the same program called Second Date. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I love how all these NSA programs are just. They have the best names. Any random two words stuck together, but in all uppercase, and it makes them different. Yeah. And, and sometimes you get some great combos, like yes. Second Date. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll get to more of that in a minute. There's a whole article about a list of the different program names we'll get to in a minute. Okay. Uh, but Second Date plays a specialized role inside a complex globally built uh, system uh, set up by the U.S. government to infect and monitor those whose documents uh, uh, estimate to be millions of computers around the world. Um, the release of this code by Shadow Broker uh, includes, or alongside dozens of other malicious tools, marks the first time any full copies of the NFA's, or NSA's offensive software has been available to the public, uh, providing a glimpse on how an elaborate system outlined in Snowden's documents looks when deployed in the real world, mm. as well as uh, concrete evidence of the NSA hackers don't always have the last word when it comes to computer exploitation. In particular, before we had some you know, some slides saying basically how this stuff works, but we didn't have the actual code to see how it was implemented. Right, uh, and now it's interesting also what this is revealing is how much The Intercept was sitting on that they chose not to publish. Like, they published some slides and we thought, oh, the only thing they have are these slides. This not, doesn't really prove much. Turns out they actually had a lot more, but for national security purposes, I would assume, yeah, just ch chose not to share with the public until it's, it's already they, out. They haven't had time to read it all. Yet Perhaps, either. yeah. You know, there were literally hundreds of thousands of documents, right? Yeah. And, you know, they can't just hire 10,000 people to start reading them either, right? Well, and the game changes, too. If somebody else releases this previously classified information, you can now... You, they kind of yeah. have, like, this whole well of information to go to that they can all of a sudden chime in with relevant commentary on for years to come, possibly. Exactly. 
second date is a tool designed to intercept web requests and redirect the browser to targeted computers that are the, uh, uh, of the targeted computer to the NSA's web servers. Uh, this server, in turn, is designed to infect the victim with malware. Second date's existence was first reported by The Intercept in 2014 as part of a look at the global uh, computer exploitation effort codenamed uh, Turbine. The malware server, known as Fox Acid, uh, has been described in uh, previously released Snowden documents. Uh, interestingly, uh, Snowden provided some background on how this data might have gotten out. Ah, this was Snowden, interesting. who worked for the NSA uh, via contractors Dell and Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, has offered some context on the relatively mundane possible explanation for the leak. That the NSA headquarters uh, was probably not hacked, but rather one of the computers the agency uses to plan and execute attacks was compromised. In a series of tweets, he pointed out that the NSA often lurks on systems that are supposed to be controlled by someone else, and it's possible someone on, uh, at the agency took control of a server and failed to clean up after themselves, and the original owner of the server took it over again. Uh, a regime, a hacker group, or an intelligence agency could have seized the files and the opportunity to, do, uh, opportunity to embarrass the agency. So obviously the NSA doesn't use their own servers to launch these attacks, right? They hack other people's servers and then launch the attack from there. Which, by the way, is why IP at attribution for origin of attack is not exactly not useful. Exactly. So you compromise some servers in China, and then from there you hack into Russia or whatever. Um, in particular... When they do that, the problem is they don't have completely control over the machine, and so someone could take it offline uh, and, and get access to the tools, and that appears to be what happened. So, yeah, it probably wasn't somebody hacking into the NSA because they're going to air gap stuff and so on, but, uh, yeah. That's interesting. You know, there was another theory that uh, I, don't know, I don't know who it was that floated it if it was – I think I thought it was Snowden, but it was something to the effect of uh, – that the that the Russian intelligence services were called in when 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 a system was discovered to be compromised, they shut down the server, they took all of the software off, and they've been sitting on it um, for for years. And his theory, and yeah, this is why it was. No, his theory was is that a bunch of governments and and, uh, and companies connected to those governments after the Snowden leaks, did a whole bunch of quick checks and probably found systems infected by the NSA now that they knew what to look for, mm -hmm. shut those systems down, pulled all the tools off of them, and then sat on them. Uh, Except I would have expected people to start using them more. Right. And so uh, the only his I think Snowden's explanation was is that the Russians are releasing this now to sort of counter some of the escalation of attribution the U.S. is doing towards the Russians. Mm -hmm. Possibly. That, but but the, but where where that doesn't quite make sense to me is then where this think, whole Bitcoin. Yeah, well, I think more the Russians would also just sit on it and, and be like, well, we have all these tools we can use now. Yeah, unless right. they're trying to publicly would, shame and say, well, you want to talk about who does sure, hacking. Like, um, in that case, you could do it with like, just like two of the tools yeah. rather than all of it. And why like, the whole? And again, them. why the whole Bitcoin? Pay us yeah. a million in Bitcoin or a million well, Bitcoins? Who doesn't want half a billion dollars? <laughs> but but if it was an intelligence agency, they wouldn't do that. I don't think. Why not? Half a billion dollars is half a billion dollars. That's true, and it does. It does, I guess, make people get distracted by it. Just it's, it adds a distracting element to the story. I think other governments would have continued to sit on this and a used it to beef up their defenses against all these known attacks, and to use the tools against other people themselves. Whereas I think at this point, it's um, you know somebody who's 
trying to actually get this stuff to stop, maybe. It's hard to say. But, you know. It's, uh, it's always interesting to look at these tools, too, and realize how far ahead of everybody else the NSA is. Because this stuff's from 2010, well, 2013. Well, yes and no. A lot of it isn't that they're necessarily far ahead. It's just that they've done the research and found more. Well, that's what I mean, though. They obviously have just a ton of like, people dedicated to but, finding this stuff and building tools yes. around it. Uh, but as we'll get to, a lot of their code is actually not so great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which you totally expect, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Softpedia has a list of equa- uh, equation group files that were leaked, and they have some hilarious different names in here. Uh, so there's Banana Ballot, which is a BIOS implant. It goes it infects your BIOS. Uh, there's Banana Glee, which is a firewall implant that does not persist <laughs> across reboots. So you hack an, a Cisco ASA or a Cisco PIX, and uh, it doesn't actually change anything on the machine. It just gives you access to it while it's running. And when it reboots, you have to reinfect it. Uh, and that way, it can't be detected on the device because if you reboot it, it's not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Banana Liar, which is a tool that connects to a currently unknown <laughs> implant. Uh, Banana Anything's funny, Alan. Yes. <laughs> Bar Punch, this, that's a good one. This is other uh, Banana Adadikarikari. I don't know. It's something associated with Screaming Pillow. <laughs> Bee Picker. That's interesting. Uh, bar Ice, a tool uh, which is a shell to deploy Bar Glee, uh, Bar Punch, which is related to Banana Glee and Bar Glee. Uh, durable Napkin. Pony, How about uh, Durable Napkin? Each <laughs> Pony, which is a firewall implant. Epic uh, Banana. <laughs> Bill Ocean extracts serial numbers from the Fortinet FortiGate firewalls. Jeez. You know, we laugh, but look at Epic Banana is an exploit priv- privilege escalation on Cisco ASAs. And look at all these versions and picks. Routers, look at all these versions that they could do. They could that uh, b- uh, epic banana exploit worked against. This is uh, this is we laugh, but this is devastating in some sense for these companies. Faux show. <laughs> look at that. They got a faux show. <laughs> uh, containment grid, a ready-made payload that is uh, delivered via the eligible bombshell exploit. Jetplow. Jiffy Row. What's that? Epic banana. Yeah. 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 Polar Sneeze, a firewall implant for an unknown vendor. Polar Pause, firewall implant for an unknown vendor. Yes. <laughs> that is really Gotham something. Gotham Knight, a ready-made uh, payload that can be delivered by an eligible bombshell. Here's a good one. Zesty Leak. <laughs> it's a Juniper NetScreen firewall implant, which, do you suppose an implant actually means like where they intercepted the packages and implanted something, or do you think implant means like, like a software? Because the then what's the difference between an exploit, a Trojan, and an implant? Uh, so an exploit lets you do stuff on the machine. Sure, okay. Remotely, perhaps, perhaps, or privilege escalate or something. So an implant is when you basically get something in there so that it usually can't be removed and that it is persistent. Huh. Second date is one we talked about today. Packet injection on Wi-Fi and LAN networks. Yes, used extra- with banana, banana, what is that? Banana Glee and yep. Bar Glee. Hmm. Yep. Uh, extract pleasing, uh, which converts data to PCAP files so it can be extracted. Wombly Lama. <laughs> what? Wombly Lama. Oh, I thought you said Bumbly Obama. I was like, wow, oh. they did what? <laughs> Turbo Panda. Oh, there's a good one. Jeez Louise. This uh, isn't, and they have these, these fun light names for these tools that are just, they fundamentally represent the undermining of American capitalism. It's really, <laughs> and the free market in general, it's really something. <laughs> they just got great names. Banana Ballot. But yeah, it reminds me of uh, this tool I wrote when I was a teenager that would just take, it took a, a text dictionary, basically a dictionary like a password list, but just a dictionary, um, and multiplied it by that dictionary 
and then found which of those domain names were still available. Mm. And then it was like, ooh, I could name my blog confusedgorilla.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now you see domain name registrars just do that automatically for you. <laughs> yeah, well, this one just did completely random ones, though. Oh, and then God. you just kind of read through them and found the hilarious ones. Wow. So, yeah. <clears throat> and then, uh, of course, as you might expect, Wired has an article here. It says, of course, everybody's already using the leaked NSA exploits. Yeah, right. Yeah. So all of well, what this means is all of uh, it means anyone, whether it's curious kids, petty, uh, petty criminals, trolls, or hackers or spies, they all have access to these tools now. Or maybe uh, government agencies in other countries that want to have a big, you know, uh, cyber presence. Look at all these great blueprints they now have to work from. Well, in particular, especially in certain countries where old software is the norm, yeah. where everybody's still running Windows XP and not going to have fixes for these vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, you know, that uh, the Cisco PIX implant we just talked about was, you know, Cisco discontinued that line of products quite a few years ago. But in Russia, they're still a very popular device. Well, and also uh, sometimes so the fundamentals are really what you need to learn. And if you're trying to train people on how to write software like this, it's great yeah. to have some some examples from... Mm -hmm. um, NSA. So, uh, curious to learn if anyone else was indeed trying to take advantage of this leak. Uh, Brennan Dolan Gavitt, a security researcher at the at New York University, set up a honeypot. On August 18th, he tossed out a digital lure that masqueraded as a system containing uh, the vulnerability uh, in the Cisco security software. Uh, that was one of the ones in the leak. Uh, within 24 hours, they saw someone trying to exploit the vulnerability. Uh, within a few attempts uh, every day since. Hmm. This is, I'm not surprised that someone's trying to exploit it. Uh, even for someone with limited technical proficiency, vulnerable systems are relatively easy to find using services like Shodan, which is a search engine for internet-connected systems. Uh, people uh, maybe read the blog post about how to use a particular tool and, and then carry out the exploit and they just start scanning the internet for other yeah. vulnerable devices and they find the honeypots. He says his honeypot was intentionally very visible online and was set up easily guessed default passwords so that it would be easy to hack to see how many people tried to do it. So uh, I want to just double down on something you just said there. So people are, uh, you know, they find out about, uh, there's, there are a lot of ways this can go down, but maybe a common way is these exploits become available online. They get integrated into security suites or people create scripts and tools around them. These become commonly available online. Then people can just pick them up and scan a website and or, or a domain and potentially find low-hanging fruit. And now they think they're hackers. Now they think they're, yes. so, you know. It's, it's, it's where the description script kitty comes from, right? You have real security researchers that write exploits. And then they do a blog post about it with a proof of concept. Right. And then some middle level guy can take that and make it stupid easy to use and write a script around it. And then a script kitty, which is, you know, any, you know, excited 13-year-old on the internet uh, can run that script and start hacking machines. Yeah, and I think uh, government systems are potentially more vulnerable to this than, than individual small businesses and large businesses because they may be more likely to standardize on a CMS. So say like you have state-run elections and you have a bunch of state websites that they have, a, they have a, a voter results and voter information website. They might all be running the same CMS. And if you figure out how to hack one of these, what's wrong with one of them, the SQL injection flaw for one of them, then all of the other sites that are using the same one may have, may have that, or three or four of them may have that same wow. vulnerability. If, if you're the NSA and you find a bunch of exploits for Cisco devices, which are like the most popular networking devices out there, and you just sit on it for five years yeah. so that you can hack people, 
Uh, well, what do you think is going to happen when other people get a hold of the tools? Yes. Real question is, how many Cisco devices does the NSA have that aren't patched against this? Hmm. Yeah, I wonder when they discover a big one like this, do they do they run around and try to come up with their own code to fix it too for their but own networks? Probably, I, I don't know that they can easily, you know, yeah. deploy custom firmware from Cisco. Right. And so if they're not telling Cisco about it. More reason why they should keep it secret. <laughs> Yeah, well, the problem is when it gets out now that now they're unprotected until Cisco can come up with a fix. Whereas if they had told Cisco about it, they could have you know stealthed out a fix a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Of course, that would have made the NSA not able to hack into as many people. Yep, and it's the problem of and, you know, why we can't let the NSA sit on these. Uh, but in particular, the findings highlight one of the potential risks that come with hoarding undisclosed vulnerabilities for intelligence gathering and surveillance. By holding on to bugs instead of disclosing them they, where they can be patched, spy agencies like the NSA create a potentially dangerous free-for-all if those exploits are ever exposed, which they always will be eventually. Uh, so, yeah. And then we have another article over here from uh, Softpedia. Computer science professor gives failing grade to newly leaked NSA hacking tools. Okay. Uh, so Stephen Checkaway uh, did a review looking at uh, some of the equation group tools and found uh, the one uh, Banana Glee, uh, BG2100, uh, has some code in it to generate a random number. Instead of reading 16 bytes of data from, you know, DevU random, what it does is reads 32 bytes from DevU random, uses the first four of those bytes as the argument to S random to see the random number, the non cryptographic random number generator that's built into C, uh, uses that to generate 20 bytes uh, what? where they just run brand uh, 2931 times 242 times, you know, just thousands and thousands of times. Uh, and then use only the least significant bit or byte from that for uh, 20 bytes that they pulled. Then use the second four bytes from Debut Random as an argument to reseed it again and repeat step three to generate <laughs> another 20 this bytes. Sounds, this sounds very cockamamie. Then generate a SHA-1 hash of those total of 40 bytes they've now done and then output the most significant 16 bytes of that hash. And he says, uh, this is ridiculous. There's no reason to read 32 bytes from dev random. Uh, there's no benefit to calling rand uh, hundreds of thousands of times. It's a little ridiculous to be seeding srand and then calling rand anyway, uh, which is doing nothing more than just calling random. And he says, uh, worst of all, uh, rather than having two to the power of 128 possible keys, uh, this procedure will only generate two to the power of 64 distinct keys. So they've actually made the random worse by trying to do all this stuff to make it... This is really something. This is, uh, as he puts in the blog post, ridiculous, really. (laughs) It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and then they have another one here, a background redirector. The background redirector appears to listen uh, for IP packets being sent from the attack host to a particular other host, and instead encrypts them and sends them to a third host. Uh, It also listens for encrypted packets from the third host, decrypts them, and sends them along to the attack host. So basically, it turns your machine into a proxy so that the NSA can make it look like your machine is the one doing the attacking. Hmm. Again, when we get to IP attribution in the roundup, I just want to point Mm -hmm. that out. But both the code and the crypto are bad. Very bad. The code has some boring memory leaks. Uh, The protocol used for encryption communication is even more interesting. I didn't dive into it too deeply, but it appears to be encapsulating TCP or UDP packets into fragments of size uh, 526 bytes, prepending a header, encrypting part of the whole and sending it along. Hmm. Uh, the header consists of a four-byte random number, 
uh, shared by each fragment corresponding to a given IP packet, an 8-byte uh, initialization vector, and a 4-byte magic number, which is D-A-C-A-F-B-A-D, which is decaf bad in hex. <laughs> some, so some coffee fans over there, some yeah. caffeine uh, coffee. Then a 2-byte fragment number and a 2-byte total number of fragments, uh, and then a 2-byte size. Hmm. Uh, starting with the magic number field in the header, the packet is encrypted using RC6 uh, in its output feedback mode, which is interesting because RC6 was never really standardized. Uh, you remember, it's it basically a newer version of like RC4 that got uh, has since been deprecated, right? Hmm. Uh, they also have an MD6, which nobody uses. <laughs> To compute the initialization vector, they use the SHA-1 hash of the plain text, starting with the magic field of the header, as computed, and the eight most significant bits of that form the least significant eight bytes of the 16-byte initialization vector. The most significant uh, bytes of the IV are just set to zero, which probably weakens it quite a bit. It's important to note that the random value identifying the fragment is not hashed into the initialization vector. I'm not a cryptographer, but this seems crazy. An IV should never be reused uh, for a given key. You know, that's how the Enigma code was broken when the same message was transmitted, hmm. or when a message was transmitted with the same key twice. Huh. Uh, and identical messages will produce identical IVs, even if the keys are different. Perhaps there's something that guarantees a message will never be sent twice, but if I were designing this, I sure wouldn't have done it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Someone else also followed up with his blog post and pointed out that leaking bits of the hash uh, of the plain text is uh, also a bad idea. But he says, I, I looked at two tools and found 128-bit keys generated using 64 bits of entropy, uh, reuse of initialization vectors, uh, initialization vector, uh, leaked bits of the hash of the plain text, uh, no authentication of the encrypted communication channel, and sloppy and buggy code. Really? He said, uh, maybe I simply picked bad tools and the others are all fantastic. <laughs> maybe they're all rushed. Doubt it. Overall, I'm not impressed with what I'm seeing here. I wonder if we're seeing the results of a small team uh, of individual contributors who are just banging out tools as they discover stuff. I right, mean, but, it, it doesn't you know, sound like there's a lot of code review happening here. All programmers make the same mistakes, basically. And yes, a lot of them, I think it was just everybody's like, your job is to come up with a tool that does this, you do it, and then it goes in our toolbox. It's just when you think, I think the, the stereotypical, uh, uh, at least U.S. proto-vision of government software development is like this really laborious uh, NASA-style code review, really slow progress, you know, build it meticulously. Uh, and, and and it just feels like they're, they're so, so disconnected from how things are really built in the real world, and it's kind of refreshing to see this. This <laughs> one is much more how stuff is actually built. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of nice. Small team and just throwing shit together. <laughs> it kind of feels like that. It's nice. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it makes them more human. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we have some actually, a, a tweet chain here. Uh, this one's about the uh, benign certain uh Exploit, which basically you send a certain type of Ike uh, packet, which is for IPsec initialization, to Cisco devices, and it will then parse the config and the private keys and send them back as part of the response. Hmm. Yeah. So that was uh, lots of interesting detail on the attack against uh, Cisco's VPN devices. And Cisco released a couple patches on the 17th of August, I think, addressing some of the stuff in the shadow brokers. 
yeah. leak, which is good. Uh, and then we have an article over at uh, medium.com from the Grug, the Grug. Uh, popular security researcher on Twitter. Uh, in particular, he says the uh, speculation that the shadow broker leak was from another Snowden, somebody inside the NSA leaking this stuff, is completely wrong, and he goes through his reasons for that. Oh, yeah, that was one of the theories. I think uh, Bill, Bill Binley put that out there, uh, uh, William Binley. Yeah, one of the theories is this was uh, somebody inside the NSA who leaked this stuff because it was unlikely the NSA got hacked like this. Yeah. I think Snowden's explanation probably makes more sense, and Snowden is more likely to know how the NSA did stuff than the analyst uh, that was reporting the other theory. Uh, but, yes, and most likely they put the tools out on some compromised machine in order to use them, and then that compromised machine was... Uh, you know, somebody re-exerted control over it and uh, got access to the tools that way. Uh, or maybe, you know, that repeated many, many times to build up this toolbox. Uh, but Matt Blaze has also been doing uh, quite a bit of interesting stuff with this, and uh, you might want to check out his Twitter feed as well. And the Medium post. Yeah. Which we all have a link. Yep. Uh, we actually, you got a lot of good links for this story in the show notes. Just look at them right now. You also... Uh, uh, you also have like inline links that are really good too in the actual notes yeah, themselves. Yeah, so. uh, as I kind of <clears throat> through the story and stuff. Yeah, so it's, if you guys are curious at all, we want more, want to know more about the story, which is like really deep and fascinating. Show notes to be a great resource for that. Any other thoughts, sir? Nope, that's about it for that one. Alrighty, well, let me take a moment and tell you guys about DigitalOcean for a sponsor today on the TechSnap program, and we've got a great deal for you. Use the promo code SNAPOcean, you'll get a $10 credit over at the DigitalOcean website. Now, here's the nice thing, is you apply it to your account balance, so it's just $10, and you can use that however you want. You, if you want to spin up the $5 rig and run it two months for absolutely free, two months of a server up on their infrastructure, you can do it. If you want to try their hourly pricing, that's also a great way to go. There's, it's very, very straightforward. I love the hourly pricing, especially when I'm testing something. It's like three cents an hour for a, for a great rig. They have lightning fast networking, high availability storage. You can deploy in seconds. Everything is SSDs. They have data centers all over the world. I really think that one of the things you'll be really impressed with, though, is their interface. It's very smooth, very slick, very easy to use. It's Impressive how they've taken a complicated topic like virtual machine administration, deploying multiple machines and deploying application stacks, doing snapshots and backups and console access, all of that. It's impressive that they've managed to put it in this interface to begin with, but the, the fact that it's so damn nice to use and that they didn't skimp on the API either is really sweet. I also will point out over in their great documentation section, Alan, you've probably already caught this one, but they have, mm -hmm. up, uh, they have one up that was posted on the 15th, uh, how to configure an encrypted ZFS pool with DigitalOcean block storage on FreeBSD. <laughs> Check all those boxes. So this is a great way to take advantage of their new block storage. Uh, up to You can get up to 16 terabytes, all SSD-backed. Now, you can start at $5 a month, and our $10 credit will get you a you can get it. You can get it for two months for free. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean over at DigitalOcean.com. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program, and that's SNAPOcean, all one word, Thank you guys for supporting our show by using that at DigitalOcean.com. 16 terabytes SSD storage. Yes, mm -hmm. please. And you can create multiple of those and attach them. If you yeah. need oh, 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 I have ideas. Yeah. So uh, this. Upload them and like uh, stripe them together. Usually when we talk about Google and security on this show, it's usually in a pretty positive light. They seem to be pretty responsive. They got Project Zero, who seems to be delivering results. They've taken a part in the core infrastructure project. They've got 
aren't they the ones behind Libre SSL or, or the what? No, which which SSL fork are they behind? The uh, so slow they, they, SSL is they, that what, they do boring SSL boring that's what it's it was a stripped down version of open SSL yeah. for their internal use only right so they've got boring SSL but it's I mean they it, okay so they're obviously very security conscious and focused so this next story kind of caught my attention tell me all about it sir yes so apparently Google's login process allows uh, credential theft they say uh, an attacker can add an arbitrary page to the end of the Google login flow that can steal a user's credentials or alternatively, send users to arbitrary files at any time a login, anytime the login form is submitted mm. due to a bug in the login process. So you could actually send people to, say, a Flash or Java exploit as well. Uh, a researcher in the UK identified the vulnerability recently and notified Google of it, uh, but Google officials said they don't consider it a security issue. Uh, the bug results from the fact that the Google login page will take a specific weak get parameter. So somebody would have to put something special in the URL that sends you to the Google login page. They say Google's login page accept a get parameter, uh, namely the continue parameter. As far as I can determine this parameter, undergoes a basic check, uh, and that's it. Hmm. Uh, the login page checks to ensure that the parameter points to start at google.com but doesn't determine whether Google services uh, are, doesn't determine which Google service the parameter is pointing to. This application fails to verify the type of Google service that has been specified. This means that it is possible to seemingly uh, insert any Google service at the end of the login process. Using this bug, an attacker could add an extra step to the end of the login flow that could steal a user's credentials. Interesting. I'm watching example, a video he has posted on his blog right now. Same thing. He's redirecting them to example.com after they log in. Right. It looks like. Um, for example, the page could mimic an incorrect password dialog and ask the user to re-enter the password, yeah. but the page they're at isn't the Google login process anymore. Uh, Wood said an attacker could also send an arbitrary file to the target's browser at any time and cause exploitation. They say, uh, exploiting the flaw um, should... Um, be fairly simple, an attacker would not need to intercept traffic to do this exploit. They only need to get the user to click on a link that has been crafted to exploit the bug uh, in the continue parameter. Uh, so you'd have to get a link for so, so the user action is clicking a link that looks like a legit Google login. In fact, it is a legitimate Google login. Right. Uh, so the researcher opened three separate reports with Google about the vulnerability, but Google closed them all. In particular, uh, in a message to Woods, Google representatives said they saw phishing as the only attack vector for this exploit and didn't consider that their problem. Uh, the simplest action Google could take uh, to address this would be to remove the redirect feature at login. If they want to retain this feature and also address the problem, they need to properly validate the content of the parameter. Google needs to make sure the values uh, they allow cannot be abused and validate the allowed values um, are also safe in and of themselves. Uh, it could be done by building a whitelist of subdomains, including pass if necessary, that they wish to redirect to. Uh, although I can see why Google wouldn't want to do that necessarily. So it seems to me that, okay, because I'm not understanding why, because it seems to me that the fact that they're allowing this to happen, yeah, it's not a vulnerability directly with them because it requires that phishing take place, but they're enabling it. And, and it only allows them to redirect something else inside Google. Sure, but, but that... That other page could eventually redirect you somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which, as which he demonstrates, or also you can do arbitrary file upload and download from their Google Drive, which he also demonstrates, which could be potentially bad. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the Google files are all uh, unguessably named to make it hard to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, in general, unless somebody um, 
is falling for this phishing attack, there doesn't seem to be any other way to cause this to happen. Uh, although there's enough ways you probably could that maybe Google would want to address it. Uh, but the the big I'm sure Google's reasons to be resistive is that it's not very easy to fix and it, maybe the attack's not that practical. But I'm sure uh, if some people worked on it, they could make it fairly practical mm-hmm. and that maybe Google would pay attention. Yeah, it seems like it's not that far away from it becoming a reality, and it doesn't. And and so you think there's some reasons though why they wouldn't want to just disable well, this? It would, you know, uh, if they take away the ability to redirect after the login page, that would mean that um, hmm. you'd log in and you would be dumped at some other page. And that, you know, if you're trying to go to a specific yeah, page, obviously, like, you yeah. log in first, and then you log in and you get dumped somewhere else instead of where you were going. Yeah, that that's would, a problem. That would that would break the user experience. Um, other ways to do this are basically have that parameter be signed somehow uh, so that Google knows they can trust it. You know, only uh, another Google app that was going to generate this URL would know the secret value to sign the, you know, basically have an HMAC or something. Uh, but then that requires some shared secret between all the Google apps. And not to mention a whole bunch of reworking on their part to support yes. that. Like, Testing. yeah. Yeah, I, yikes. I don't know. That's That doesn't seem very feasible for them right now. Yeah. But the other question is, What's the best way to solve this if you're, say, building your own website? Okay, right. that is a good question. What is? Yeah, because, you know, you don't want to really do it with cookies or session data because what if I have multiple tabs of the same website open? I don't want all of them to get redirected to different places. Yeah. And, and yeah, it gets uh, all kinds of interesting. <laughs> so they're probably not going to fix this because, yeah, they would just break way well, too many. Really soon. But I'm sure they're interested in having a better login system, but it's a very hard to solve problem. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, th- so hmm. mm-hmm. it seems like the, really the only precaution you'd have to take is just look at links that are yes. sent to you that uh, go to Google. You, you wouldn't expect to log into Google uh, from a link you clicked in your email, right? right? Um, and also, yes, be suspicious of failed login pages, right? Well, if you, uh, if you log in and then you get redirected to another page that's asking you to enter the password, check the URL again. See, sure that's it's where I think it's the most tricky is that's that just getting it to redirect to another page that looks right. And it would have to, you, you know, it, if you could use this to steal people's credentials, this seems like this really seems like where people take advantage of it to me. Yep. Hmm. All right. Any other thoughts on that story, sir? Uh, no, that's it for that one. All righty, Mr. Jude. Well, then let's take a moment right here, right now, and thank the great folks over at Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com. That's where you go to get yourself $25 off your first Ting device, or if you bring one, they'll give you $25 in service credit. Also, you support the show by visiting that URL, TechSnap.Ting.com. Ting is mobile that makes sense. They're on a mission to actually change it up, thank goodness, because, boy, does it need it. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and that what you pay. that's what you pay for. You don't pre-buy into a whole bunch of minutes or data or text messages that you may or may not use. If you have a support issue, you get to speak to an actual human being, and they have CDMA and GSM services that you get to choose from. They have a great dashboard that brings all of this together, including apps for your mobile devices. So you got the, you've got the best experience when it comes to customer service. You've got the freedom of paying just for what you use. It's $6 for the line, and then just pay for what you use on top of that. And then also... They have a great deal. I don't know how much longer this is. I don't know. I don't know how long this is lasting. But the Moto E second gen, and the and the, the Moto E second gen is not going to be your Cadillac high end Ferrari Android device, but it is a reliable driver, and it's fifty seven dollars at Ting right now. If you go to TechSnap.Ting.com too, I think you buy that, they'll give you. They'll also give you twenty five dollars in service credit. 
average monthly ting bill per line is like $23, $24. So they're going to give you $25 in service credit, and this phone's 57 bucks. There's no contract, and there's no early termination fee. So if it doesn't work out, like it's super low risk. This is a great time to try out ting on an actually decent Android device. And if you scroll down... Uh, Man, I just can't believe that deal. That that fifty-seven dollars on a Moto Moto E second gen makes it cheaper than a feature phone. It's just crazy to my face. They have a bunch of great devices too. Uh, the Home Phone Connect is back. The Netgear Zing is also back in stock. They have some really interesting Samsung devices that I haven't heard a lot about. <clears throat> and the Motorola Moto G four, hundred and seventy-nine dollars. That's are that's really. Or maybe the look at the the iPhones are the prices are really Ting's got some good prices right now. TechSnap.ting.com. You can bring your own device too, like uh, the uh, if you want to grab one of the Nexus devices and bring that just straight straight over to Ting. Or if you've got one that's already compatible, they've got a BYOD page you can check out. You you might just be good to go. TechSnap.ting.com and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring. The TechSnap program, TechSnap.ting.com. I kind of have the itch for a new phone, and uh, <laughs> you always. I know, I know, but that's nice because see, times. I don't have to worry about like resetting a contract or an agreement or whatever else they want to call mm-hmm. it. I just mm-hmm. uh, just swap the SIM in. So this is an interesting one. I don't know if we've I don't know if we've uh, talked about this. Have we? Uh, Researchers mapped the locations of 4,669 servers in Netflix's content delivery network. Now, I know we've talked about how they do it a little bit, but we've never known the scope, right? Right, yeah. uh, Netflix has never been willing to disclose how many servers they have. Yeah. That's, you know, pretty. I'm really excited to hear about this. uh, You know, I know quite a bit about what the servers actually look like and how much they can do. You know, uh, I've, I've watched as they've scaled up to being able to do, you know, 10 or 20 gigabits per second uh-huh. to, to being able to do 40 to being able to push 80 and out we've, of a we've talked about like nick. the cool like storage the, the way mm-hmm. their storage works where they just plan for drive failures and they have a cache <laughs> of movies that are more frequent and all that stuff and just the whole concept for those who maybe don't know what we're talking about the concept mm-hmm. that Netflix m- maybe helped pioneer here but it's just genius is they went out to as far out in the in different you know, spots of the internet at ISPs and, and central points and installed these massive Netflix server boxes that are pre-cached with some of the most popular Netflix content. So that way when you hit play, instead of coming from some server in California, it could be coming from a server that's in your ISP's office. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, and so it, there's actually some interesting results of that in this research. So yeah, they say, uh, when you open Netflix and hit play, your computer sends a request to the video streaming service to locate the movie you'd like to watch. The company responds with the name and location of a specific server that your device must access in order for you to view the film. For the first time, researchers have taken advantage of the naming system that Netflix uses to map the location and number of I've servers wondered about that entire content delivery network. I, I have, I have, this is, uh-huh, I have wondered about that exactly. So this is how, so they have, because I've I've looked at that number and like, that must be like an inventory of some kind that tells it where it's at, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so how, though, do they find all of the different numbers and names and stuff? Like, this is a process. uh, They talk about it a bit in the paper. Uh, But, you know, part of it is an airport code. So they just tried every airport code. Uh, And then (laughs) part of it is, the, the ending part is like C and then in three digits, that starts at 001, and it just goes up every time Netflix adds a server. And so they just tried all of them. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, um, if, there anything, if Netflix is anything like me, while we use airport codes, 
in a couple of places, we use a non-standard airport code because the airport code doesn't say the place name in my head. Oh, right? that's funny. Like Chicago's airport code is ORB, but all of our servers in Chicago are CHI. Because that's just what works better for you when you recall yes, it? Yeah. I know that that's what that is. Uh, and Toronto, rather than YYZ, mm. is, is T-O-R. Mm. Uh, but almost <laughs> everywhere else is the airport code. Now we all know your secret, though. Yeah. Uh, and so on. So I wonder if this research missed any. Although uh, part of their enumeration process was based on using a browser plugin to bounce off over 700 different IPs from different countries to help enumerate the set as well. Uh, let's say, uh, for, um, I've totally lost my place. Because <laughs> we were just getting all giddy about how the tech works and how they figured it out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so for the first time, researchers have taken advantage of the naming scheme to map the location of the, and the total number of servers across Netflix's entire content delivery network, providing a rare glimpse into the guts of the world's largest video streaming service. Mm. Uh, so the group is from Queen Mary University of London. Uh, they traced the server names to identify 4,669 Google servers in 400, or sorry, 243 different locations around the world. And you're showing a map there. Uh, the majority of these servers still reside uh, in the United States and Europe at the time where the company is eager to develop its international audience. Uh, in January of this year, Netflix expanded to cover 190 countries, basically just opening up everywhere else in the world except for right. China, basically. Uh, the United States also leads the world's uh, in Netflix traffic uh, based on the group's analysis of volumes handled by each server. And we'll get into how they did that a little bit later. Uh, roughly eight times as many movies are watched uh, in the U.S. than are watched in Mexico, uh, which places second in Netflix tra traffic volume. The United States, uh, or the United Kingdom, Canada, and Brazil round out the rest of the top five. So what's interesting is that Netflix is apparently very popular in Mexico. Hmm. I wonder, uh, I wonder if it translates to like TV types of programming they get in certain countries, things like that. Yeah, uh, be interesting. Um, in March, Netflix did a, a blog post outlining the overall structure of its content delivery network, but they didn't share the total number of servers or server counts for specific sites. Yeah, it's usually considered secret sauce, really. Uh, and then, like we said, last January, Netflix announced that it would expand its video streaming service to 190 countries, and... Uh, recently predicted that the number of international Netflix subscribers could be greater than U.S. subscribers within the next two years. Um, so their the, worldwide server deployment becomes actually a rather important issue for them. Well, yeah, it, it, while it's relatively small right now, as they get viewers in more of those places, yeah. it will likely grow. Uh, Steve Ulig, uh, the network expert at Queen Mary University of London, uh, who led the mapping project, says uh, repeated analysis over time could help track shifts in the company's server deployment and tr uh, see how the traffic volumes change as their customer base changes. So apparently this sounds like they're planning to keep this running and look for changes. Boy, it seems uh, like if you wanted to be competitive against Netflix, this is where you go after them. Possibly. Although Netflix is, you know... They're really... They're a worldwide brand. Uh, traditionally, content delivery services have chosen one strategy or the other, either going in internet exchange points or being embedded in the ISP. Akamai, for example, hosts a lot of contents inside ISPs, right? That was their big advantage when they started uh, a very long time ago, is that, hey, we'll cache Windows Update and uh, things like that at the head end of the cable companies so that it's not actually using the cable company's internet connection when you download your Windows updates. Uh, 
Well, Google, Amazon, and Limelight, which is another big uh, previously powered CDN, oh, prefer yeah. to store all their stuff at internet exchange points. Right? These are basically the crossroads of the internet where you can easily get connected to a whole bunch of different ISPs all at once in one place. So you can service all those ISPs out of one location instead of having to embed in each of those different ISPs. Um, however, Ulig's group found that Netflix uses both strategies and varies the structure of its network significantly from country to country. Uh, one of the doctoral students, uh, who's a member of the research team, says he was also surprised to find two Netflix servers located within Verizon's U.S. network. Uh, <laughs> Verizon and other service parties have argued with Netflix over whether they will allow Netflix to directly connect servers to their network uh, for free or they'll charge a fee. Uh, whereas in 2014, Comcast required Netflix to pay for access to its network. Uh, tellingly, the group did not find any Netflix servers within Comcast's U.S. network. As to the mysterious Verizon servers, they say, we think is quite likely this is just a trial to consider broader future deployments because two servers is not going to be enough to serve the Verizon customer base. Mm -hmm. uh, Netflix did not respond uh, to a request for comment. <laughs> but in general, yes, we know that uh, Comcast will not allow Netflix to put boxes inside Comcast and charge Comcast a very large fee to allow uh Comcast servers at one of the, some of the internet exchange points directly connect to the Comcast network and shunt the traffic into Comcast that way. But that's not anti-competitive. Uh, no, uh, no, not, that's not that's not monopoly-like behavior. Mm -hmm. No, uh, but apparently Verizon may be considering doing proper Netflix boxes and getting the Super HD, uh, which. I hope would happen just because then it makes... Well, it's a feature uh, differentiator. It leaves Comcast as more of an outlier. There's also, I think, and I could be wrong because I don't, I don't have a 4K TV anywhere, but I think also you, uh, you need that if you want 4K Ultra HD, like uh, fancy Netflix, which, you know, some of their original but, series are. Yeah, uh, now that they have the like House of Cards. servers pushing harder, yeah. they might be able to do that. More. I know that. I know that it's on. I mean, they already have it on for for some customers and whatnot. You can well, yeah, get your ISP has an embedded box. You definitely get it. Yeah. Uh, but some locations they might. But be could able you? To could, could you? I could foresee it because Netflix is getting huge. Like I just well, read articles. Netflix, I think Netflix slightly changed that model to if you pay us a couple dollars extra, we'll give it to you anyway. Oh, see, I was just right. thinking I, that I guess then they could afford the bandwidth. I was just the way I was thinking about it is this could become like if you're an ISP that doesn't have this feature, it's you're not you're not as competitive. Yep. But then again, I guess if you're a monopoly, it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. They say, uh, their search revealed that Netflix servers' names are written in a similar uh, construction to many other places. A string of numbers and letters that indicate traditional airport codes, like LHR001 for London Heathrow, to mark the server's location, and a counter, such as C020, to indicate that this is the 20th server at that location. Hmm. A third element, written as either .isp or .ix, indicates whether the server is located at an internet exchange point or if it's embedded at an ISP. Okay. That's interesting, isn't it? So if you knew to look for that, you'd know if your ISP has a box. Yeah, or if you're using that box right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. If your ISP has three boxes and you're watching something not very popular, you're probably going to reach out to the ISP anyway. Yeah. Uh, to study traffic volumes, the researchers uh, relied on a specific section of the IP header, uh, that keeps a running tally of data packets that have uh, given a server that a given server has handled. Uh, by issuing multiple requests to these servers and tracking how quickly that value rose, the team estimated how much traffic each server was uh, processing at different times of the day. Mm. They tested the servers at one-minute intervals over a period of ten days. 
I have some concerns over the validity of that testing method. Okay. Because that counter, I think, is 32-bit counter. The, the field's definitely not bigger than that, although it might be counting packets, not um, bytes. I forget. Uh, but it's considering that that's a 32-bit counter, and the larger Netflix flashback servers, I know, push over 80 gigabits per second at peak times at night. Okay. Which would mean that a 32-bit counter would wrap every 24 seconds because it uh, wraps at 4 gigabytes. Okay. And you're going to send 4 gigabytes every 24 seconds. <laughs> uh, also, if it's an unsigned counter, that would mean it would wrap every 12 seconds. And so that while you calculate the difference, uh, it might have rolled over many times and, and, you, and you didn't count that. Uh-huh. Uh, also, I would expect after this article, Netflix will change the setting in FreeBSD and make it randomize that number for each new connection so that nobody can tell. Yeah, that's a quick fix. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also noticed the UK has more Netflix servers than any other European country. Uh, of course, I think it's because the, uh, the UK got Netflix first and because more people speak English there. Uh, and most of the servers in the UK are deployed at internet exchange providers, whereas in France, uh, customers get their films exclusively from an internet exchange at one particular internet exchange, the France IX. Uh, Netflix basically only has the one location in France. Uh, Eastern Europe, meanwhile, has no Netflix servers because those countries only recently got uh, became part of Netflix, and until they have a bigger customer base, they'll just basically pull from Western Europe. Uh, what was interesting is the researchers expected to see a lot more servers embedded in ISPs rather than at internet exchange points. Uh, but there are basically two reasons why this is not so. Uh, the first is that you it would take more hardware, right? If you put a bunch of boxes in London at the internet exchange where every ISP is connected, uh, then you cover every ISP. If you put boxes specifically at, if you have to do, you know, um, British Telecom, uh, Virgin, and... Uh, where they have Orange and like eight other ISPs, it's going to take more boxes, right? Uh, now, for really big ISPs, it's probably worth it. For some of the smaller ones, it's probably not, uh, and so on. It's not, just, it's not just more boxes. It's more deals, more making negotiations, more contacts. It's like, it's like death by a thousand cuts versus a couple of major deals, right? Uh, and then the other thing is that a lot of ISPs, like Comcast and Verizon, have not been willing to accept Netflix boxes, which Netflix gives to ISPs, you know, basically for free. They don't actually charge you for the hardware because they still own it. It's their hardware and so on. They, you know, they have certain requirements that you're able to do this and that you're able to download from Netflix at a certain speed for them to refill the boxes. Uh, but in general, you know, Netflix would love it if more ISPs accepted these boxes. It seems like they would it, want them because yes, it Netflix, saves... Saves them, saves the ISP uh, well, a lot of traffic too. Comcast wants Netflix to suck on Comcast so that you'll pay for Hulu or whatever Comflex is over or Comcast the on demand or whatever. Yeah, I mean they got. There's a whole list of reasons why Comcast wouldn't want Netflix to be great. Yeah, uh, and that's probably has more to do with why Netflix is hitting uh, internet exchange points instead. Although the mm. other one is just bang for buck. You know, I have I have read multiple times. And I can't, I can't think of any way to test it other than maybe packet capture or something. I have read multiple times, though, that Apple made a deal with Netflix that the uh, Netflix app on the Apple TV uses Akamai for Netflix streaming. Uh, and that other Netflix apps don't do that. And I've read it, I've read it a couple of times, and I don't... Uh, I know Netflix originally used uh, Akamai yeah. 
I'm like and level three. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If I, I don't know. I mean, and I don't know build. if it's true or not. But I I have read it about the previous Apple TV and the current models. Right. I don't know if Netflix still actually pays Akamai. Hmm. I know Perhaps Netflix is not true too. But if they're stuck in a deal with Apple, maybe they still are. Are you? Uh, I guess there was no. I guess there was no P2P solution that would have worked for Netflix. That there isn't one now. Offers like the kind of rewind and instant streaming and jump around and frame preview that they would really need. It's, it doesn't work for this at all. Yeah, that's too bad because it would be be a great way to to work well, around the guys at Comcast. <laughs> yeah, it would, uh, yeah, yeah. Like users have asymmetric connections. They you know. Biggest problem for Netflix is most people can't even download the five megabits to watch an yeah. HD stream, even yeah. though they're paying for a hundred megabits of internet. Not to mention their upstream is usually half of what their downstream is, or more, more than half. One eight yeah. is is good if you have if you have one to eight, you're you're ahead of people. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, um, lastly, uh, in March, uh, the company said it delivers 125 million hours of viewing to customers every day. Uh, the researchers learned that Netflix traffic, traffic seems to peak just before midnight local time, uh, with a second peak for the Internet Exchange servers occurring around 8 a.m., and uh, presumably that is when Netflix uploads new contents to its servers. Uh, so if you want to know more about how Netflix actually moves movies around on its servers and why sometimes it would keep multiple copies of the same file on one server, uh, you should check out uh, the article we covered, Netflix and Phil, uh, because so that's what they call it when they fill the servers instead of Netflix and chill. Anyway, uh, BSD uh, 157 uh, from yesterday uh, has coverage on that uh, blog post from Netflix and walks through uh, how they run their FreeBSD powered CDN and distribute their files. Cool, Alan. That's in this week's BSD now? Well, we're going to mention it again because I wanted to just distract you for a second and, saw, and say that today, speaking of Netflix, uh, I saw a study from... Um, Extremeist, like you know, like extreme, not not like extreme, but stream, like video stream. Uh, they said that uh, services like Netflix, and they specifically called out Netflix, are saving the average kid over 150 hours of commercial each year. Possibly, yep. 150 hours of commercials each year—that's not bad. One point hours per day of using net. If they watch, if they watch Netflix for one point hours per day, so that's almost two hours. Uh, then they're probably. They're probably being saved 100. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, too. You, that's nice, too. I guess any like podcast, you could say the same thing about, boy, think about podcasts. How many hours of that, right? The TechSnap program. Whew, yikes. I tell you. We should, they should put us on Netflix. Uh, I linked the, uh, or I pulled up the uh, research paper that you have linked in the show notes mm-hmm. a couple times while you were talking, which has, like, hard numbers in here about the total servers and ISPs and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, Another look at that map if you want to yeah, check that out. Uh, yeah. That's nice. So I have all that up in the... Uh, all right, that's all up in the show notes where mm. Alan pulled all this stuff from. Oh, cool. They did breakdown by uh, version. Oh, by Canadian. There's Canada, yeah. Mm, 32 in Bell, Canada. What's your, Rogers? Is that your ISP? Uh, my ISP was Shaw, but it is Rogers, but I don't have it. I am my own ISP. Yeah, 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 now. Shaw, 125, Rogers, 43. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, Shaw Rogers have their own thing called Show Me that's kind of trying to be Canadian Netflix. Oh, my And Bell has their own thing called, like, Bell TV. And sadly, the Star Trek uh, show, well, will be on Netflix in every country except for the U.S. and Canada. Yes. Where Canada will be on Bell and U.S. it will be on CBS. And 
on Usenet. So uh, that's very fascinating. Look at those. Look at you know. Can you imagine being on the team at Netflix, building out constantly? And one of the things that you actually kind of—I don't know if you—you you, you made me the kind team of that develops the OS and everything is like eight people. Good. I think I know all of them. <laughs> good, that's good. Don't don't go. Don't get big and bloated. Um, mm-hmm. But you know what? It made me think well, about that. that was the, I forget which other story I was reading somewhere, but uh, saying that you know Netflix is going to get bought at a huge premium by somebody very soon because of how well it's doing. It's like really I don't. I think Netflix is going to be buying people or buying companies. I mean. Um, it just makes me think about how intentional they seem to be before they deploy a new server. So you were mentioned, you know, when they open up in this country, they wait a while and wait a while, and they just they just you know bring it on, bring it in over the long haul until they have enough of a customer well, they, base. They have to balance it right because if the service doesn't work, like if it's too slow to actually watch the video, then people aren't going to subscribe. Yeah, I guess. So I guess. I guess it shouldn't feel noteworthy that a company seems to be growing responsibly and deploying like after there's revenue to justify it because it seems like in this age internet companies just go crazy. Yes. Well, Netflix is a real company, not a startup. Yeah. That's what makes the difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know who that makes me think of speaking of a real company that's in it for the long haul? That makes me think of our friends over at IX Systems. ixsystems.com/techsnap building ultimate servers around your open source workload powered by those incredible Intel processors. This is a company that's been in it since before the dot-com boom, and they've invested in the community. They've invested, and by community, I don't just mean like the open source community, which they absolutely have, but I mean in hardware partnerships and software partnerships and in the support and in building an incredible team at iX Systems. you got to go to our landing page to support the show to learn more, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there and dig around on the iX site. I was just, uh, you know, perusing the blog casually like I do. And I happen to notice a little announcement that went up today. IX Systems Free NAS 10 beta available now. Ho, ho, ho. Entirely brand new uh, user interface. I'm, I'm a little miffed because sure. in the preview of the post, they have a screenshot of what looks like the most badass graphical interface I have ever seen. And then when you go into the post, there's no screenshot. <laughs> and I clicked you have the, to download it and try it. I know it's literally uh you know what this would I literally have open in the next tab. <laughs> ixsystems.com/techsnap. So they have systems that will really it's not they're not just about storage they'll do all kinds of workloads but this just shows you how invested they are in just one aspect of their business. TrueNAS is a fantastic Check, check out that the thing underneath the, the second story. Uh which one the uh, the beta release? IX rack. No, uh far Oh, oh, oh! You mean the uh, the other post? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the I oh IX Systems introduces announced at VMworld the IX rack. The oh, I saw IX this rack, which is if you have been thinking about switching all your stuff to the cloud, but realize that that's expensive and slow because you only have so much internet. Meet the IX rack. Uh, basically, it's everything you need to have your on-premise cloud. Uh, so it's got TrueNAS for storage. Uh, Big Intel boxes for running your VMs. It can run VMware, uh, KVM, Zen, or some fourth one they found somewhere. Hybrid and all flash data storage, up yep. to five petabytes. So Hundreds of virtual clusters. Storage, run all your virtual machines, everything uh, that you need to basically have the equivalent of your own Amazon cloud. Look at this one, though. Rack. 70% lower total cost of ownership than uh, AWS. And uh, what's it like four times the speed as well? Uh, because you can use 40 gigabit Ethernet all over inside instead of just 10 gig. Our IX, our, IX, our IX rack, which is a great solution, stair step from a compact one fourth rack system to a multi rack configuration. Oh, everything's in there. That is 
man, this would be great for a company like JB just to, to put something like this out there. This is, oh my gosh, they are they are really clever. But you don't need... No, know, I like that I get the small ones. BMs, right? Oh, I do. Yeah, but it's, it's meant to be running no, hundreds no. of VMs. No, no. I need, a lo- I need a lot of VMs. I got distros for days around here. I got to test, test, test. <laughs> I suppose. I, I understand why you need the storage. I could, always find, I could always find a use for hardware. But that is li- cool. So, so IX is like literally, do you need a 1U short depth single machine to be mm-hmm. a router or whatever? You want to spend like only $1,000? Or do you need like five rack build out? We're going to compete with Amazon. It's like, Whatever scale you want. Good for them. Small machine for your house, or do you need 500 machines for work? Good for them. Do all of it. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there to support the show. They also have a white paper if you would like to grab that. Uh, I know in the past, when I've wanted to switch hardware vendors because the ones I'd been buying from, like, were horrible. In, in, In every possible way, often, but sometimes in just really special ways. You have to kind of grease the wheels, and that was that, that white paper will help you do that. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That landing page also supports the show, and thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so we teased it just a moment ago. ZFS, the universal file system, episode 157. Yes, uh, we interviewed a ZFS on Linux developer. I think he's had the second highest number of commits on ZFS on Linux of anybody. This sounds like a must-watch. Yes, it was very good. Uh, there's also a great discussion at the end about ECC memory and why... The hell does my laptop not have that? <laughs> uh, I have a laptop yeah. in the roundup to show you that might have it. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Netflix and Phil also, which you just mentioned uh, a moment ago. <laughs> cool, Alan. Uh, that is looks like a really great episode. Uh, episode 157 of the BSD Now program. There you go. Check it out. I think I will. I think that will be my uh, drive home uh, uh, commute show today. I'm looking forward to it, Alan. Now that's all of the news for this week, which means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JB site and choosing TechSnap from the drop down. Alan, our first email is a follow-up, so we're going to jump right into it because it just sort of uh, dovetails, if you will, mm-hmm. right into uh, last week's episode. Jeremy writes in about blocking Windows outbound connections. Remember that somebody was concerned yep. about Windows 10 privacy? He says, hello, Chris and crew. I was listening to TechSnap 281 and had some input on blocking Windows from being able to phone home. I do this on my network with PFSense on an APU20C4 paired with a pie hole on one of my handful of Raspberry Pis. I use a squid transparent web proxy with logging on a PFSense to monitor all the web traffic and use a blacklist on the Pi to block any computer on my network from even being able to do a DNS lookup for certain domains. You could accomplish the work of the Pi hole directly on PFSense, but I like the easy ad blocking and totally cool graphics that Pi hole gives me. I use a Windows VM with bridged network adapter and run Wireshark and IPTrafNG to monitor network connections along with watching the Squid Proxy. This gives me a good idea of what to block. Some good tools listed there. Very good feedback. And of course, if you heard me ramble through some of that and want to know which ones I'm talking about, Jeremy's email is linked in the, in the show notes there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so his trick, I think, for monitoring the Windows machine really is VM, bridge network, running Wireshark, and IPTrafNG monitors all the connections uh, with, uh, and also watches on the Squid Proxy. 
Yeah. Which is uh, pretty great. And uh, Jeremy had a good anecdote I passed cool. along to uh, to Noah, too. Anders mm-hmm. writes in with our next email. He says, uh, I recently found out that my ISP offers a 6RD. Am I saying that right? 6RD? Mm-hmm. Uh, tunnel. So I've begun playing around with IPv6. Even though I know that NAT is not something I really have to think about, I'm having a hard time of letting this concept go. Maybe you guys can help shed some light on a couple of things. First, a little something about my setup. PFSense with a separate VLAN dedicated to IPv6 and DHCP v6 relay running on the interface. Clients get IPv6 addresses and are able to communicate with other hosts over IPv6, so all is hunky-dory. Now here's where my confusion begins. Let's say I spin up a machine where there is a web server and an SSH server. I only want the web server to be reachable over the internet and keep SSH blocked. I've set up rules in my firewall to do this, but when I spin up the second machine and run Nmap, it shows both 80 and 22 as open. Is this because both machines are on the same 64 slash network? Similar to the machines on IPv4 land would be able to see ports on each other, or are they, are they open to the whole IPv6 world? Or is it because it somehow behaves differently when going over a 6RD tunnel? Ideally, so, uh, Just to answer that part, yeah, so if this, uh, when the machines are in the same subnet, which they probably will be because your ISP will assign all the machines together in a subnet, um, when you connect to another machine in the same subnet as you, you don't go through the router, right? You, uh, you do neighbor discovery and you find the machine over the local network and send, and it basically only goes through the switch and you never actually talk to the router. You only talk to the router to go out to other places. Makes sense. Uh, cheesy way to check this you could spin up a DigitalOcean droplet with IPv6 for just an hour for like a cent and uh, try to connect from there and make sure that uh, it's locked down the way you expect. I think that's a great way to go. Yeah, and I, that answers the rest of his, that really does answer the rest of his question. So very nice. Thank yeah. you. So yeah, Have if, fun if, with IPv6. Have that. Yeah, basically, also, if you run a traceroute 6, you'll see. If it, if it doesn't have a hop going through the router, then you know the connection didn't go through the router, and that's why uh, the router couldn't block it. Mm. Yep, that makes sense. Andy writes in, uh, Hello, Alan and Chris. This is about a single disk ZFS for offsite backups. I was going to email from my Dropbox, but I couldn't find the email just for the show. Psst, it's techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Uh, he says, Anyways, I'm currently using external USB hard drives to take backups since bandwidth at my data center is an issue. I current, I'm currently using Extended 4 on the disk, but I'd love to get some bit rot protection from ZFS. The only thing is that I'd like to keep using single disks at a time. From what I've researched so far, I'd have to use copies equals two setting and lose half the capacity of the disk, or be a lot more vulnerable to the file system being corrupt from bit rot in the metadata. Any suggestions for single disk backup without sacrificing capacity? Thanks, Andy. Well, so what ZFS will do is it will detect the corruption, if there is any. It just obviously, without a second copy, won't be able to fix it. In the case of if you're basically using these hard drives to sneaker net, to move the files from your data center to the offsite location where you then load them up onto something that does have protection, like a, a RAID array and backups or whatever, then you can do it because if ZFS detects, oh, this file's corrupt, you know, hey, I need to also copy, get another copy of that file or maybe copy that one file over the internet. Um, and it solves the problem. So ZFS without any extra settings will be better than ext4 because when there is a problem, it will detect it and tell you about it. Um, you could use copies equals two, but then yes, you're putting two copies of everything. Uh, more likely, any corruption you're going to have 
basically your disk is more likely to completely stop working, in which case even copies equals three isn't going to help you much, right? Um, and for metadata, ZFS is already keeping two or three copies of metadata in most cases anyway, uh, so you don't have to worry about that. So most likely you would just use ZFS plain without changing any of the settings, except for maybe, you know, obviously compression and so on, and then rely on ZFS detecting the issue. And since it's your backup, you can be sure that, uh, you know, oh, I need to go replace that file. Or, you know, even ZFS says, this file's unreadable, you should restore it from backup or whatever. Mm. Um, but if your solution for backing up is keeping a bunch of things on separate single disks from in external USB enclosures, that's probably not a great backup. It's a good way to shuttle the data between the data center and your offsite location because you don't have bandwidth between them. Uh, but you should then be unloading the ZFS into, um, you know, something that has storage that is actually has re some redundancy. That's a good idea. Uh, and the advantage to using ZFS there is you can also send snapshots of your data, so it makes it easier to do incrementals and uh, to you know do specific data sets and stuff like that. Mm. Good tip. I like that. Good luck, Andy. Let us know how it goes. David writes in. He's got a different take on secure file sync. This is uh, we're going to bookend uh, feedback with another follow-up. Uh, hi, Alan and Chris. I've been an avid viewer since I was twelve. Fast forward about a decade, and now I'm a uh, wait a minute, a viewer of wow. <laughs> Uh, fast forward about a decade, and now I'm a junior dual majoring in networking security and technology forensics. I'm sorry, I was just throwing off. Somebody a bit. not understand what a decade is. The show's only been on for five years. I think he 10. means he's been watching me probably for a decade, and oh, now awesome. he's been and he's been in, in TechSnap was part of that decade. A Can while you imagine that somebody started watching Linux Action Show originally was twelve, and now it would be twenty something. <laughs> That's just throwing me off for a little bit here. Yeah. But I'm good. I'm good. Uh, a while back, you made mention of LibreVault, a secure key-based alternative for file syncing. Uh, as an InfoSec student, I've been exposed to many solutions for file syncing and thought it would be good to recommend you take a look at Demonsaw. Demonsaw is a file syncing for the paranoid, and it's supported on multiple platforms, including Linux and Android. I often use Demonsaw to securely sync all of my lab documents across multiple systems. Best of luck with the shows. And keep it going, and that's at demonsaw.com, which I have not. I I I can't remember if I've heard of it or not. That name. I swear I've seen it. It was it was on my list of things that maybe cover on TechSnap like three weeks ago. Oh okay, ago. yeah, yeah. It uh, do, does seem like it's worth checking out. But uh, it's related. It's more like a. It looks like it's maybe more like a bucket, and it's it's a little more of a file sharing chat app. Yeah, which is also very cool and could actually be a cool way to exchange files with the audience. Right, so. but it's yeah, it doesn't seem like it's quite the same thing as a uh, sync thing. Right, which is more of like a a sync thing or a Libre Vault is more like at your file system level, the files get sunk between two different folders over the network all the time. A Libre Resistance Vault is new file sharing in the other term of file sharing. Right, more like in the um, frost uh, frozen by what were those? Uh, like Frostwire, LimeWire, Frost yeah, which is still pretty cool and a legit way to share files. Uh, as long as it's faster than eDonkey. You know what? I'm going to take a look at it. I'm going to, yeah, <laughs> eDonkey. I'm going to bookmark it right now, and I'm, if, I, if I get some time to spend with it, I might talk about it more on Linux Action Show because it does look like they have that. Uh, oh, uh, chat room says that apparently Demonsaw has some connection to John McAfee. <laughs> well, then you know it's good. You know it's got to be good. Let's see. Can we find out more? Let's find out more, because then that's just got to be a top-notch product. Oh, I'd love to get, like, a video of him endorsing it or something. Uh, but uh, there's a talk uh, about Demonsoft from uh, DEF CON, if people are interested. Yeah, and they don't have, they don't have, if he's McAfee's on there, they don't have him on the, about the, on the, meet the team. But, right. uh, 
Yeah. Demon Souls created free from, let's see, oppressions of government, corporations. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And it could be a cool way to distribute podcast files. That's always what I'm looking for. Uh, and amongst other things. So, demonsaw.com if you guys want to check it out. And that's with the S on the HTTP. Don't forget it. We'd love to get your emails, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, or just use that contact form at the top of the site. You just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, you pop that thing, choose techsnap from the drop down. And then we have these trained monkeys with little hats, glasses. An epic banana, a cigar, and they just take your message and they send it off to the show when you choose the right drop-down box. It's all kinds of magic. You can also submit a thread at techsnap.reddit.com. And with the feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now the roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. We still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our dispersed worldwide intelligence network at techsnap.reddit.com. Like this first story came from that worldwide dispersed mm-hmm. intelligence network. Whatever I called it, it was great. FBI director wants a, quote, adult conversation about backdooring encryption. Mm. <laughs> I love the register subtitle for that one. Yeah. How about F off? Is that adult enough? <laughs> yeah. So the problem here is that they don't seem to be able to get it to their head that what they're asking for, which is secure backdoored encryption, is impossible. It it can't be both. It's like asking for us to make these two lines parallel and perpendicular at the same time. Yeah. It says it, that it literally can't. It, doesn't work that way. He's going around collecting evidence so that in 2017, after Hillary's president, uh, America can have an adult conversation about breaking encryption. You know, whichever president we end up with, Trump or Hillary, they're going to be like, okay, Mr. Comey, whatever you want, we'll do that. They're not going to, you know, like this is just, this is, this is a, a blight on the history of U.S. politics. Well, the worst part is we've been through this all before. The... And- we're st- speaking of it. Yeah. Guess what else is still broken? All the crypto that was invented there last time we had this this conversation. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, the collision attacks against 64-bit block ciphers. Bruce Schneier has a post up here about it, uh, talking about you know this is why AES uses a 128-bit block size and so on. Uh, and you know Bruce is one of the people that helped write Blowfish, uh, which is one of the algorithms that uh, is now broken because of this. Uh, of course, he's already written. Two fish and three fish, uh, which are newer and uh, are not having the same problem. But anyway, uh, he links off to uh, Matt Green or Matthew Green. He's uh, got some blog posts on his site uh, that actually explain it in more detail. If you want to know more about what was going on, I know we didn't have very much about it last week, uh, but uh, Matthew Green's blog has a breakdown that uh, I think most people will be able to understand easily enough. Very good. This next one is just a quick one. Over eighteen thousand Redis instances are being targeted by fake. I don't know why it's called fake. I haven't. I have not dug a lot, and that's why it's in the roundup. Fake ransomware. So here's well, the summary, if, though. If you say, "Hey, I've encrypted all your data. Give me money," and don't actually encrypt the data, and people give you money, then fake ransomware. Oh, okay, yeah, that's. I guess what I assume. Uh, Duo Labs is uh, set out to figure out what's the scope of this whole thing, and they say there's over eighteen thousand Redis instances exposed to the internet. Vast majority of running out of date versions. They found automated attacks scanning the internet trying to compromise devices running Redis with fake ransomware. Evidence of these attacks was found on 13,072% of the hosts running Redis. Um, And after setting up Honeypot to catch attackers, they record an attempt attack in just hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's really... Your database 
open to the internet with no authentication. Like, the step negative four in how to be a server admin. Really a low-hanging fruit that people can just exploit really simply. So this... This, I think, is the headline we all expected to see sooner or later. The Dropbox hack is real. It's right. Real. So there's uh, other stories going around, and I guess I probably pushed a link to one of them, too. Uh, talking about, you know, uh, I'm sure everybody got the reset email from Dropbox uh, last weekend. Um, and uh, I think you had to have an account that was older than 2012, right? Yes, which I did. Uh, so I got the email. Um, but there was a question whether some of this data was real. Uh, and so... This researcher managed to get a copy of the list of password hashes, and uh, uh, while his password had been changed since then, he could so he couldn't verify it. His wife's account, uh, she uses, I think it was one password or something, and hasn't changed her password because it's a giant, long, random string since 2012, and he was able to prove that her password uh, is actually the one that was listed in the dump, uh, proving that you know this, this dump contains real logins and passwords for real people. Oh, Dropbox. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have a lot of... Uh, somebody uh, at Dropbox. We'll have lots of transparency from Dropbox on this with good write-ups and technical analysis. The interesting with uh, Dropbox was that originally the passwords were like SHA-1, and then they were... Uh, possibly some of them are SHA-2, maybe, and then and then a transition to Bcrypt. Which I think we talked about that back in like 2012, right? When they talked about transitioning to Bcrypt? I, I think we might have. I know you and I might have mentioned it to each other, but I don't know if we talked well, about it. Well, like, I'm sure there's a TechSnap episode about it from 2012. Oh, okay. There you go. Maybe we did. It all blurs together in the, uh, in the long run, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> and then the people in the audience are like, I just listened to that one. What are you guys talking about? What are you talking about? Well, that's what you get for listening to stuff from 2012. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Just a heads up to some of the uh, – I think this only affects Mac, so this is for our Mac audience out there. It looks like transmission has gotten affected – Infected again with malware, the OS 10 slash Keydnap, which I guess is a pretty nasty. It's designed to steal the contents of the OS 10 system's keychain and then maintain a permanent backdoor. Ugh, that's no good. So if you downloaded transmission recently, you might want to make sure you're not hosed. I think anywhere between the first time that their download has been compromised. No, so yeah, yeah. Between the 28th and the 29th, I think is when they have the compromise. So if you downloaded. Transmission in that window. Uh, if you downloaded it recently, you just might want to look into it. So this is an interesting one over at Slashdot. Uh, yes, Slashdot. I said Slashdot. Security flaws fuel bet against St. Jude. Not not our St. Jude. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, so this one is uh, security researchers uh, at uh, Muddy Waters Research uh, looked into some of the medical devices that St. Jude Medical makes and found serious vulnerabilities in a range of the company's implanted cardiac devices. Uh, Yikes. And so uh, the the report has caused a steep sell-off of St. Jude Medical stock, uh, which is, you know, losing ground. Uh, and so what's interesting is that the researchers recommend people that read the report take a short position on that stock, meaning they will make money when it gets sold. Uh, or basically, a short is when you borrow the stock from somebody and then... You sell it to somebody else. That sounds right, yeah. And then it goes down. Anyway, you make money off the price going down. Yes. That's uh, a short, I think. <clears throat> I don't yes, know. That's what a short is. Anyway, uh, what's interesting is this whole concept of, oh, I've discovered a vulnerability in your product. What I should do is take a short position on your stock and then publicize that vulnerability as hard and loud as I can 
and make a profit off of it. So, you know, security researchers go from, oh, we're going to try to make a name for ourselves by being the guys that found that bug to being, we're just going to make money by, by making Media Splash about the bugs. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. So uh, this next story is a case example of something we've kind of been commenting on all episode, and that's how dodgy it is to do attribution for all the various different reasons. So the FBI has warned state election board systems of hacks, hacks. A flash warning been sent out to the, by the agency 10 days ago that was revealed by Yahoo News, I think on Monday or Tuesday. I don't know why Yahoo got a copy of this secret need-to-know-only letter, but somehow it's Yahoo did. Verizon now, right? Uh, yeah, and the, yeah, now it's been published. Other, other places confirmed by Fox News and CNN. Uh, the flash warning doesn't specify which states were affected, but according to Yahoo, Arizona was one of them. Hackers allegedly downloaded the personal data of 200,000 voters in Illinois in July. Now, a lot, of acquisi- a lot of accusations are being made that it's Russian hackers. They have an IP address that was used in a couple of hacks as the same IP address. They say they've seen that IP address on... Russian hacker deep web forms, whatever that means exactly. But here's the reality of what happened. We don't, well, we don't know who did it. This is how simple these attacks were. These massive attacks that all of the news is talking about, the Russians hacking the election system, and now we need to have the Department of Homeland Security step in and protect the elections. This is all they did. The attacker used Acutenix, a common web application scanner. It scanned the board of election site for vulnerabilities. And then it used the open source tool, SQL Map, which is a penetration tool, and it just took advantage of a SQL injection vulnerability on the site. Yeah, that's not real hacking. This is not sophisticated state-level hacking. These are two no. freely available tools that this person used. And, and what's happening here is it's being blamed on the Russians, when in reality, it's probably somebody trying to figure out some sort of identity theft scheme and selling this information or using it to rip off identities. It's probably someone in that state. And if you figured out one of them is this vulnerable, you'd probably just go knock on the door of another state's system and probably find the same exact vulnerability. Yep. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty wild that uh, it, there's so much hysteria around these most basic attacks now. Uh, so the FBI sent out a flash warning about that. There you go. In an unprecedented move, Samsung is recalling the Galaxy Note 7. Well, I don't know if they've actually recalled it yet, but they're probably going to. Tell me about it. Uh, apparently, the battery can explode. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. They've uh, been doing an internal investigation into reports of exploding phones. And uh, yeah, sounds like they're going to recall them all as an abundance of caution. And they say it only affects 0.01% of the ones they've sold. But I think they mean of all phones they've ever sold to downplay that number. So it's like you can't compare it to that. No, but, uh, no, because if it, if it, yeah, it's probably a much higher number of just the Note Seven. Um, yeah. You know, that's yeah. bad press, Exploding. right? Exploding, like we're not talking about melting or getting yeah. overly hot and burning people. Timing <laughs> on that explode. is rough because Internet Phone Seven comes out next week, so that's a bad story. All right, so remember that laptop I was telling you about? Maybe this SOB has uh, ECC memory in it for you, Alan. This is Acer's Predator 21X. It's got a curved screen, a GTX 1080, and a laptop. It's got a 7th generation, generation core K-series processor. It can have 4 terabytes of SSD storage, uh, and it's a huge, ginormous monster. I know this doesn't actually say anything in there about ECC, but uh, I don't know how many 8 kilograms is, but uh, that's... That's, uh, that's a lot. Sounds like a lot to me. 
So there you go. Here's your next laptop, Alan. What do you think? Uh, eight kilograms is 17.6 pounds. <laughs> That's a big laptop, Alan. Yeah. They had so to curve the screen. Go in the opposite direction. Uh, Lenovo has their new yoga book, which is so thin. It can't have a keyboard. They basically that did might a touchscreen on the keyboard area. Whoa. So it's not, the touchscreen doesn't take up speen, uh, space on your screen. It's on where the keyboard would normally like be. They're hollow, they call it like a hollow keyboard. A halo? Yeah. Hollow. Halo. 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 Because it glows. It also reminds me of the Microsoft uh, Surface Book they did kind of recently. Right. Uh, and you can press a button and the keys go away and it becomes a tablet for or like a drawing surface. Like wow. a Wacom tablet. That's pretty cool. That's a neat, that's a neat little trick. Price uh, isn't bad either. Oh, they're they're going to sell it with Android or Windows. Yeah, uh, it has uh, a small Atom processor. I'm trying to find the specs. Yeah, 500 bucks oh. for the Android, 550 for the Windows uh, version. Yeah, the tablet or laptop has an Intel Atom processor, 64 gigs of micro SD storage, 13 hours uh, battery life, 4G LTE connection, uh, 802.11ac Wi-Fi, front and rear cameras, 10.1-inch screen, uh, which is 1980 by 1200. And you can get it with LTE connectivity. That's cool. Yep. Uh, And, yeah, the Windows version will be $550. Huh. I like that they have an Android version, too. That's actually a little more appealing. Uh, And the Android version will be $50 cheaper. Uh, Yeah, $500. It's fairly very thin, but, um, yeah, low-end Atom processor, I don't know. That uh, for most people is just if you if you would run Android on it or if you're just going to yeah. use it for web apps and so yeah. on, yeah. Then I'm sure it's fine for a lot of people. Yeah, I don't know about uh, with Windows. Anybody who but... does real typing, I think they'll want the real keyboard though. Hmm. So this is an interesting one: the story of how WowSign gave me an SSL certificate for GitHub.com. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it sounds I like I didn't remember if we talked about this uh, last week. Or I don't time. think we did. And yeah, it's simply it's like he, because he had like a GitHub account, they just assumed he was from GitHub. So this is basically any type of subdomain. Uh, so originally it was okay. found trying to get a uh, registered SSL certificate for a certain subdomain of the university and managed to get one for the entire university uh, and then found they could do the same thing for GitHub. That's a good one. That's mm. a good one. Huh. He does a Linux. He's a Linux system administrator and web developer at the University of Central Florida. Good for you, sir. Uh, nice. That's great. All right. Last but not least, I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on this one. Amazon to experiment with part-time tech teams. The Seattle company will test the use of engineers and tech staff who work 30 hours a week, thus sidestepping many of the problems faced by part-time workers in a full-time environment. Yeah. So you'll work 30 hours a week instead of 40, get the same benefits as the 40-hour people, but obviously make less money, Uh, have flexible hours, although you're required to be there Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., but the rest of the, you know, you can decide whether you want to show up earlier and leave at 2 or, you know, start at 9 and work till 3 or whatever combination works. Jeez, those hours are way better than my current gig. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, um, Hope, I imagine their, their hope is to get more people to have families and kids and so on to keep them flexible. Uh, also, I think this type of thing uh, might be more interesting to uh, people that want to work on open source stuff where you can have a day job, but it actually doesn't take up 40, 50 hours of your week and gives you that much more time to actually work on an open source thing. Yeah. It's, it's also, it sounds like the expectations are set. You're working 30 hours. You know, Sometimes when you have a 40-hour job yeah. and you're in IT, sometimes the expectation is... full-time job. It's just full-time. It doesn't matter what the hours are. Now. Yeah. Well, in particular, Amazon, you know, we talked to the article that came out in the New York Times last year, or year before even, 
uh, where you know saying that working at Amazon is especially grueling and they're mm-hmm. really pushing people mm-hmm. having this uh, more relaxed thing. I think will help them recruit. I think most of it is they're hoping to recruit people because uh, they're you know they've hired like twenty thousand people in the last two years. Um, but also, I think by targeting maybe people that need the flexibility because they have families now, uh, they're hoping to get certain group of people that will stay. Mm. You know, when they get the young people, they get them for a couple of years and then they get burned out and, or want to just get bored and want to go work somewhere else or start their own company or whatever. Yeah. Uh, whereas when you have people with family, they're more likely to stay longer. Want stability. And maybe they, this way they'll be able to have uh, both things, right? You have your, your rock stars and your... your Good. Salt, I wouldn't... Know. I'd be I'd be really interested. I guess maybe the measure of success would be if we start seeing other known companies also Do pilot programs things, like this. Yeah. That'd be the thing to yep. watch for. Oh, well, and it's also what's interesting about it is it's just the uh, um, slightly more European model of of not working yourself to death. Yeah, and I think it's I think the part that really surprised me is when you mentioned they're still going to have benefits. Yes, they still get the same benefits as the full time people, so it's not actually like dropping down to part time. Yeah, that's that is the unique and. Are they sure these guys aren't well, again, Seattle-based? That doesn't sound like a Seattle company to me. Uh, again, this is because I think because they're having trouble recruiting more people. And so they're yeah. like, you know, <laughs> we'll give you all the benefits and we won't make you work as much. Please come work for us. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, guess what? That brings us to the end of this week's here broadcast. Now, the TechSnap program's live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 2000 UTC. All right, good enough, good enough. Also, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, get converted to your local time zone. I would mention, if you didn't know, it's a podcast, though, so you don't even have to watch it live. I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. We got RSS feeds. We got them up on the YouTubes. We got all kinds of stuff. We also got the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. All things you can check out at your leisure. Don't forget, we'd love to get your feedback, too, at the contact form. And last but not least, if you're a patron at the $3 level or more, we're also posting the entire live stream of the TechSnap program. Uh, for your yeah, enjoyment. Do you want to watch the bit where I got up and went to the bathroom? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I played a, I played a cool video about uh, Deadwood while you did that. So okay. there was okay. there it was content because I always you know me I hate dead air I always yes, I, I always dance like a monkey uh, in between the segment breaks for somebody. Uh, but yeah, it's fun. It's fun, and it's like more tech snap show, and you get yep. to hear about the things we talk about beforehand and after the show. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of Tech Snap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>